Well, we've been making our journey through uh, the gospel of God in Romans chapter 1, so uh, we'll begin back there again. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Just this week and next, Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter in this short series. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Happiness, that's a, that's a word that's thrown a lot around a lot these days. Uh, I just want to be happy. Can I, can I do whatever I want as long as I'm happy? Is happiness a right? If so, who defines how to be happy? And what is happiness? Does, does anything go? What about when the world talks about sexuality and relationships and gender? Happiness seems to be the highest goal. Ultimately, the question about happiness with sexuality is more than just sex and marriage and gender. The ultimate question becomes what it means to be human. One writer responded to the techno-utopian scientism with an observation that civilization must decide whether we see persons as creatures or machines. If we are creatures, then we have purpose and meaning, but we also have limits put on us from our Creator. But if we see ourselves and the world around us as only machines, then we believe the myth of our own limitless power to recreate ourselves any way that we please. And we believe that then we can be happy any way we want. This seems to me to be the question at the heart of sexuality and the controversy in our world today. Are we created as both the Hebrew scriptures and how Jesus put it, male and female, from the beginning to marry the opposite sex, or are these categories arbitrary or, and self-willed? Do our bodies and our sexes represent something of who we were designed to be and thus impose limits on our ability to recreate ourselves for the sake of our own happiness? Or do we have complete freedom to remake ourselves into whatever we like? Who has the right to say? That's the question that Romans 1 answers definitively. If we are ready to listen and to learn and to heed God's word, who is our creator? Our God is a God of order, and he determines how we receive happiness and are happy. And so here's the main idea. When our worship of God is disordered, our desires will be disordered. And then I'm going to add a little line at the end of that, and happiness is elusive. When our worship of God is disordered, our desires will be disordered, and happiness is elusive. As we read through these verses, and we will here, Romans 1, 1 through uh, 28, we'll read through all of it in a moment, you will find a pattern, especially in the verses that we're going to cover this morning, verses 24 through 28, you'll find this pattern of how you see the sections divided. Three times, Paul writes to us, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. And it's to that end, to the consequence of disordered worship which then results in disordered desires. The behaviors that Paul describes are not the root of the problem, they're the results of the problem. The problem is that people don't worship God and they, as we learn, suppress the truth and exchange the glory of a mortal God and exchange the truth of God for a lie. And because people do not love God, all of our other loves become disordered. And so God, as we read, hands us over to disordered desires and there are three that are mentioned here, and that's my outline. Disordered lust, 
disordered passions and disordered minds. The first two we will really tackle. So if you're taking notes, point one and two will be the main thrust of the sermon. Point three I will only touch on for a couple minutes at the very end because it will lead into next week. But Lord willing, we will look at the detail and finish Romans 1. So, disordered lust, disordered passions, disordered minds. So, follow with me if you have a, a Bible. If you don't, there should be one situated in the chairs that you're welcome to use and keep for your own. We're going to read Romans 1, verse 1 through 28. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that may that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is God's word. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we thank you for your word that guides us and leads us and shows us who you are and how we are to respond to you and how we are, how we are to live. And I pray that you would speak now to your people. May you teach them. May you help them understand what your word says and how to apply it to their lives. And we'll be sure to give you all the honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see is disordered lust. Idolatry is the worship of something other than God. Idolatry is at the root of all sin because all sin seeks to steal glory from God, to whom glory is rightly due, and and it seeks to then take glory upon itself. If we go back in our Bibles to Genesis, to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, we read the narration of God creating the heavens and the earth so that he 
so that he may rule and, and dwell with the created order. And we see on the sixth day, God created Adam and Eve to image him on earth. And being created in God's image means that Adam and Eve were to represent him on earth in all their thoughts and all their actions. It is a divine imprint of God in humanity that reflects his divine attributes and functions. But then we come to Genesis 3, and we know that chapter, right? And the serpent comes and tempts them to reject God's rule over them and gives them the lie that they can be gods themselves, just like their creator. And they both succumb to the temptation and they sin. They reject God's created order and rule over their life. They want to live their life their way. And at the root of all sin is idolatry the worship of something other than God. Fundamentally, created things should not worship any part of the created order. Images should not worship other images, oneself or otherwise. We were all made, every single one of us, to worship the creator, but instead we worship the creation. And, and life, God, God's people just, for it, it gets, just gets worse and worse from Genesis 3. If you've been reading through the Bible plan, you just kind of follow along. Genesis 3 starts this tumble down the hill and it just keeps going. Instead of submitting their lives to God and obeying his word, we read Israel rejects God and continues to fall into more and more idolatry. And God would have to deal with Israel's sin of idolatry over and over and over. And we learn from the Bible that sin isn't only doing bad things, but it's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things and then worshiping those things. Sin is building your life and the meaning of your life on anything, even very good things, more than God. And whatever we build our lives on will ultimately drive us and then enslave us. Friends, sin makes you stupid. And this passage this morning is stained with idolatry. It's covered with humanity's pursuit to worship anything other than their creator God. And when that happens, disorder comes. And so Paul begins his section in Romans 1 and verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Or another translation is God handed them over. And we receive this phrase multiple times before Romans 1. We see it over and over in the Old Testament. One in particular I want to read is Judges chapter 2, where God's people refuse to worship their creator. Turn there. I want you to see it in your Bibles. Judges chapter 2. It's on page 256 in my Bible. Judges chapter 2, where God's people refuse to worship their creator and remove the false gods from their midst. And so we read of the consequences from God. Judges 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. These are other gods. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. See, the writers always want to point back to the goodness and the faithfulness of God to their history. And they went after, he says, he continues, verse 12, and they went after other gods, small g, and from among the, among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. The consequences for turning against their God, he says he hands them over. To hand someone over is a technical expression for the police or courts in turning someone over to an official custody for the purpose 
of punishment. The same phrase is used in the Gospels as Jesus being handed over to the authorities to be killed. And in Judges, we see here, God hands his people over to the consequences of their rejection of him. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment of his crimes earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. And Paul will show the ever-increasing cycle of sin here in Romans as the wrath of God is revealed to us. Turn back to Romans 1. You know, when we try to, to visualize the, what, what God's wrath looks like, many in, in our world picture scenes from a disaster movie, right? If they were to, to talk about God's wrath, they, they think of lightning bolts and thunder and, and, and horrible things, the, the rocking of the world. Is, that's the only way they see wrath. But, but Paul gives us a very different picture of God's wrath here in Romans 1. We see God's wrath in this. He gives us what we want without him. That is what Paul is trying to communicate here. God's wrath is seen that he gives us what we want without him. We ask for a reality without God and he gives us a taste of it. Sin leads to judgment, but judgment also leads to further sin. And sin leads to getting what we want, and it's like sipping salt water. Friends, do you see the moral chaos in our world today? You know, the senseless murders of of people going to the grocery store in Buffalo. The political hate and fear-mongering from either side the killing of babies by the thousands every day. That is the visible evidence of the wrath of God towards sin and sinners. He said earlier in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The presence of all these sinful acts that Paul lays out in this last bit of Romans 1 is a reminder that we live in a world experiencing a foretaste of God's wrath and provoking its final outpouring on the day of judgment that is to come. See, God is righteous and he's holy and he expects his creation to live that same way. But we have all turned away, suppressing the truth walking away from our creator, and now experiencing the wrath of God in our world. And so Paul writes in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. There are many... Even as I read this week that lump verses 24 and 25 in with 26 and 27 about the sin of homosexuality, and, and that very well may be the case, but I see verses 24 and 25 really standing on their own. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. When Paul writes lust, here it's also translated sinful desires, but, but literally it means an over-desire, an all-controlling drive and longing. And the main problem of our hearts is not so much desires for bad things, although they they are there, but our over-desires for good things, our our turning of created things into gods, into objects of worship and service. And and the worst thing that can happen to us is that we're given what our hearts over-desire. So take for an example a man who worships his career. He serves it. It makes him who he is. It drives him. It dominates him. And everything in life is fitted around that career that he's pursuing. So what is the worst thing that could happen to him? A promotion. Why? Because it allows him to keep on believing that his career is what defines his life and his loves. It digs him farther in to that God that he worships. 
it, it allows him to continue to be fooled that his career is what needs to be worshipped and adored and cared for more than God. And the over-desires of our hearts leads us to impurity. The, the ESV rightly interprets the general word Im, immorality in verse 24 to impurity. And Paul is showing how the sin of idolatry leads to the disordered desires in our relationships and in all of our lives. A distorted view of God will most definitely bring a distorted view of human beings who are made in the image of God. And when men and women refuse to honor God, they begin to dishonor themselves who are made in the image of God. And sexual immorality is evidently a consequence of human idolatry. And so Paul could mean all sorts of over-desires that dishonor our bodies, but we know from other scriptures that at the core of lust in humanity is the drive for sexual immorality. And it would seem Paul chooses to highlight that all sex and sexual behavior outside of marriage is how we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. When the knowledge of God that's seen in creation is suppressed, the nature of man suffers and it manifests itself in unnatural acts. See, a distorted view of God brings a distorted view of other human beings and of yourself. That's why pornography and sexual sin is so prevalent in our society. Sexual sin uniquely dishonors the body because sex unites the bodies of image bearers in a way that nothing else does. If you're a little prudish this morning, just understand that God created sex. Maybe we should have a sermon about that at some point. It's God's creation. And the world distorts that. So uniting your body, which was created for God's will, with another person's body outside of marriage is an act against God's will. And it demeans both bodies, as Paul says, says here. It dishonors them. And pornography isn't any better. It takes what was meant to be special between a husband and a wife in a, create, in a, in a bonded relationship, and it abuses it with the purpose of self-gratification. See, if we do not worship God, we will worship something else. Whether it's sexual gratification or increasing our possessions or simply trying to keep all the rules in life so that we can make ourselves feel better. See, idolatry is the unnatural is is unnatural in the sense that it is contrary to God's intention for human beings. It's this is what sin involves, turning from what which will ultimately satisfy you, namely the creator and redeemer who is blessed forever and turning to something else that will only leave you more miserable, namely created things. See, idolatry means we're looking to something other than God to give you what only God can give you. Idols in our lives can be money, it can be sex, as we're saying, or approval, or achievements, or power, or family, or comfort, and a host of other things. You know, it's a good test for us to ask ourselves, who or what, if it was taken away from us, would make our life miserable and horrible? And whatever the answer is to that, that is our idol. So perhaps today is the day where you take stock of your life, where you ask yourself the hard questions that you've been ignoring. Today's the, the first day where, where you can call sin what it truly is and, and to turn from it and to turn to our loving creator, God. And maybe you wonder, is there, a, is there a way back from this life that I've developed right now, that I'm living in? Perhaps I've been talking about you and you feel and you recognize that your life is just a mess right now. 
and you're a train wreck coming in here this morning. And, and you, you feel the weight of your sin that's sitting on your soul. And you wonder, is there any way out? Is there any hope for me? And Paul pauses and he gives you a clue in verse 25. See, if, you, if you've been caught in a cycle of sin, rejecting God and exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, what do you do? Paul stops and praises God. Do you see it there in verse 25? He says, who is blessed forever? Amen. See, the, the thought of idolatry was so repulsive to Paul that he had to, to utter a common Jewish benediction, praising the creator in defiance of idol worship as he just described. He had to cleanse his mind, and he praises God right at the end there in verse 25, that God was his hope. And yet today, you're here by God's grace, and you can't do that because of the shame, the disgust for a life lived away from him, possibly living in sexual sin in such a way that no one can imagine. But God knows, and Jesus knows shame. You know, he experienced it firsthand. You know, one of the main points of crucifixion was not just to kill a man, but to demean him while you killed him. And we see that in Jesus' death. The nakedness, the mocking, the spitting, the crown of thorns placed on his head, the purple robe. It was all humiliating. It was an inversion of his kingship. See, friends, Jesus understands shame. He understands your shame. And he experienced shame on his way to the cross. But the cross was even more. Amazingly, the cross was where God started bending our evil around to restore us back to him. See, we thought we were getting rid of Jesus, but God made sure that we'd get ourselves back. At the cross, we proved how bad we really are to God, but on the cross, God proved how good he really is to us. See, friends, at the cross, God didn't sweep our evil under the rug, but he exposes it and then he pays for it. See, the love of God is not a cheap compromise. His forgiveness is genuine forgiveness. And yet you look at your life and the mess of your life and you think, if God has any self-respect at all, he must despise me. He must hate and loathe me. I mean, he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be wrong to despise me, all that I've done, all that I'm doing. But friend, that, that despairing thought keeps you hanging back from God. Self-punishment doesn't make you more forgivable. It blocks your way to forgiveness from him. And he's inviting you to come out of hiding and to find your forgiveness in him. And so friend, perhaps today is the day where you begin the fight against your sin instead of succumbing to your sin. And the way out of the spiral of sin is to stop suppressing the truth that you know about God and to praise God as God, to depend on him and accept his right rule over your life, to desire him more than anything else we desire on earth. And how do we find the motivation to do this? How do we find the power to do this? It is only through the good news of Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
while we were still ashamed and stuck in sin, Christ died for us. Friends, that is the gospel. If you're battling sin, you're in the right place. By God's grace, he brought you here. And my encouragement is stop battling alone. Find another Christian to hold you accountable and to work through the sins that are plaguing you. Find me or another elder or Pastor Chris after the service so we can encourage you and point you in a direction to another believer here. God is a God of order and his word can help us order our lives and correct those lusts that have gone wayward, but it won't be easy. And it's not meant to happen alone. And so find someone today and talk and confess and seek the Lord and he will answer. See, when our worship of God is disordered, our desires are disordered. And so first we saw disordered lust, second we, we see disordered passions. I'm sure most of you realize that what was condemned just 20 years ago is now accepted and promoted as an alternative lifestyle today. In fact, it isn't just as something that we, everyone needs to now tolerate, as once was encouraged even just a few years ago, but now it must be accepted and now it must be promoted. And Paul is not suggesting here as we look at the next two verses that, that this is the journey of every individual, but rather a broad history of humanity which impacts individuals in different ways. I recognize this is a difficult passage to preach. Not because the truth of God's words is hard, but because this affects people who are caught in sin. When Paul describes both lesbian and male homosexuality behavior as unnatural, we know that this is a clearly massive thing for the world to hear, and yet a very hard thing for the world to hear and understand. And so as I walk through these next two verses, I do so with trepidation because lives are at stake. Because real people made in the image of God are in these issues, are struggling with these sins. See, people who have been living a same-sex relationship for years, friends, they're still image bearers of our Creator, and they deserve respect as fellow humans. And we need to understand turning away from this lifestyle is costly. I want to mention, if you want a, a good book to read about the life and the testimony of a homosexual who walked away from a lifestyle when she heard and believed the gospel we have a few copies in the bookstall called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Con uh, Convert, An English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. It's a, it's a fabulous book. I don't agree with everything at the end, but the main thrust of it, the first three-fourths, is by far one of the best books to read of the journey of faith for those that, that struggle with same-sex attraction and the power of the gospel. And while I'm talking about books, there's another one that I mentioned last week in our member meeting. It's called Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefine Identity and Spark the Sexual Revolution. If you want to understand how we got where we got now in our culture today, this book will walk you through it and equip you to understand and to speak to these issues thoughtfully and helpfully. You can get those two at the, the bookstall afterwards. Well, let's look at these verses. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Although this is a difficult passage, it's also a very clear passage. The passage shows us why it's not true for those with the same-sex attraction to say, but God may be this way. Paul's main point in Romans 1 is that our nature, as we experience it, is not natural as God intended it. All, all of us have desires that are warped as a result of the fallen nature. 
And I believe that same-sex attracted people do feel strong desires towards the same sex, but those desires are not from the Lord, and they need to be fought against. As we read Paul, he makes a switch here in verse 26 and 27 from a more general lust and impurity that we looked at in 24 and 25, and now specifically now he's going to tackle same-sex relationships. And now we need to understand that his purpose isn't trying to prove that this is the the most heinous sin in relation to all other sin. That's not why Paul is saying this now. If you've been taught that, it's wrong. He's saying this now because God sees this sin as particularly clear illustration of the violation of created order. Homosexuality is the evidence that people have turned away from worshiping the creator and now worship the creation instead. Those who suppress the truth about God is revealed in nature, suppress the truth about themselves, written in nature. And so homosexual practice is an example of a horizontal plane of our vertical rebellion against God. And we see homosexual behavior as sin, not according to who practices it or by what motivation they seek it, but because that act itself as a truth-suppressing exchange is contrary to God's created order and design for the human race. We were all created persons, not machines. We have a creator, and he has determined how we are to live. That's why I began this morning about the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. See, to go against nature is therefore to go against God. And and what I want us to understand is based upon Paul's logic in Romans 1, homosexuality relations violate the order of creation established by God for all people. And as believers, we ought to judge our culture by biblical standards and not force the Bible into the mold of our culture. God's design is a good design. He is the creator. He has the right to determine how it should function since he is the one who created it. And so to honor the creator, we we honor how he has designed it to function within his his parameters. Let me give you a poor illustration. Maybe it'll be helpful. Have you ever been in a situation with a little child, comes home from school, perhaps has a gift for Mother's Day, something they molded out of clay, and you look at it and think, that's a great dinosaur. And the child is offended. That's not a dinosaur. I made it. It's a unicorn. How dare you say it's a dinosaur? I made it. I know what it is. See, we don't argue back with a six-year-old. It may look like that, it may be confusing even, but the creator gets to determine the creation. And yet today there's a lot of confusion in how men and women have been created and their function in the creation. And they argue with God on how they are created, believing that they can decide for themselves There is even more modern controversy with some religious folks who have come to the issue of homosexuality. And and, and they want to to understand, but they also want to, to give a different view of what God's word says. See, some scholars argue that Paul doesn't condemn all forms of same sex relations, but refers only to homosexual acts practiced by people who are naturally heterosexual and who fall into homosexual acts. According to their interpretation, to act contrary to nature involves engaging in sexual activity contrary to the personal nature or character of the individual as decided by the individual. Thus they say that Paul should not be understood as implying that all same-sex relations are contrary to what God intended from creation, but he speaks only against same-sex acts that are practiced by those who are heterosexual by nature. Friends, their argument lacks credibility and cohesiveness simply because Paul is using the argument from nature as the basis for these acts. You see, for Paul, it was a simple matter of observation that that homosexual behavior is contrary to nature. 
so that even pagans who were ignorant of biblical teaching had no excuse for not knowing God's purpose for their sexual organs. It is clearly seen. And it's understood and it's rejected. And they've exchanged the truth in favor for a lie. For the pursuit of happiness. Have you noticed in this passage the exchanges that are happening all throughout? Exchange glory for for worship of the creation, exchange truth for believing a lie, exchange natural relations for those that are unnatural. When people trade away the God of creation for other smaller gods, they also trade away the design of God's creation for a parody of that design. And ultimately, and, and sadly, they trade away genuine happiness for a fake plastic happiness that won't satisfy. Paul ends here in verse 27, he says, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What does Paul mean here? It is judgment that's already occurring. And ultimately, these individuals are restless and disconnected because they're not finding their rest in God. That is ultimately the due penalty. And they suffer the consequence of their sin in real time. They suffer a loss of personal identity, an uncertainty as to one's role and place in life, and sometimes they suffer continued depression and anxiety because they've placed themselves outside of the created order. The due penalty for their error is like food that cannot satisfy. The more you eat, the hungrier you become. Do you remember reading C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? You know, Lewis writes about this, this same sobering reality of sin. If you remember in the story, early on, Edmund finds his way into the wardrobe. No one believed Lucy, poor Lucy. And Edmund finds his way there, and, and, and soon he's confronted with the evil queen. And he's cold, and he's hungry, and she offers him a drink and some food, and he willingly accepts. And, and what does he ask for to eat? Do you remember? Turkish delight. There's a great one in, in Seattle, by the way, if you ever in downtown Seattle. And she, she creates it. She just, with, with her magic, makes it right then. A big box of Turkish delight, and, and he eats, and he eats, and he eats until it's all gone. And then Lewis writes this. At last, the Turkish delight was all finished, and Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she would ask him whether he would like some more. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking, for she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, and that anyone who had asked, who had once tasted it, would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating till it killed themselves. See, all sin, whether sexual behavior like indulging in pornography or hooking up with people outside of marriage or homosexuality or even the sin of greed and power, all of the participants believe they're getting the good offered in God, but instead of fulfillment and satisfaction, they get enchanted Turkish delight that will never satisfy, and that will always long for more and more and more until it kills them. See, the tragedy of humanity is that we strive for and fail to find what we could simply receive and enjoy from God because we ultimately don't want to submit to him. We suppress the truth which would free us and ultimately satisfy us for all eternity, and we settle for much, much less in this world. As a church, we need to understand 
that if we have individuals in our midst who are experiencing same-sex desires, that they are no more exceptionally evil than you or I. You need to emblazon that on your mind. If you don't believe me, if you think there's a hierarchy to sin, you need to keep reading the rest of this chapter. Because Paul keeps telling us, and we won't get into until next week, that they're sinners like us, gossips, slanderers, boastful, disobedient to parents. I mean, that's all of us, right? Do I need to ask your mom? I mean, all of us have disobeyed parents. A few of you seated here did it this morning. So as a church, we need to be clear that the sin of homosexuality and same-sex attraction is not the chief sin and that we are somehow better sinners. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so we need to be compassionate and gracious and hold out that hope for those who are struggling with these desires. And the point is that everyone is to not be mastered by our over-desires, but to be submitted under Christ, all of us. And friends, the good news is there's mercy and forgiveness and transformation for all those who turn from themselves and turn to Jesus Christ. With the gospel offer of freedom from slavery to sin comes the challenge to become slaves of righteousness. We can be changed not by our willpower or our motivations or our desires. We can be changed because of Christ and what he does in our lives. But we do need to understand we are the worst sinner that we know. And Jesus is the best Savior. And so I pray that we would be a church that would be a refuge for those who are struggling and that they would find hope here. Not in us and how nice we are, but they would find hope in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so sin not only affects our affections and lusts and our passions, but it affects our very thinking. And that's the third point, and we'll just be in here just for a moment, a disordered minds. Paul says that unbelieving minds become debased minds. And so I want to scoot into this section just for a moment. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of righteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. See, an unfit mind is the fruit of seeing God as unfit to rule over us. This is the third time that Paul says in this section that God gave them up. And it's all connected. Verses, really, verses 18 through 32 is all one cohesive thought by Paul, but we won't cover it this morning. You're going to have to come back next week. Before I leave, before I pray, I want you to consider a a few questions, okay? In what ways are my desires out of order? That is, what do I want that I know I ought not to want? And what do I do not want that I know I ought to want? Now, are there concurrently desires in my life that are not in line with God's word? You need to think through that. You need to spend some time this week praying and asking God for clarity to understand yourself. And he will answer that prayer. These verses are an excellent opportunity for some self-reflection. And we'll come back, Lord willing, and finish that next week. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. 
And I pray that we can rightly see ourselves in light of your word this morning. God, I pray that we would all humble ourselves before your word and before you and seek to obey. God, I pray that you would give us strength and courage to confess our sins to you and to turn away from them and to follow you. God, I ask that you would help us as a church family to love one another and to encourage one another to walk in holiness and give us hope. For those that have come this morning and are hopeless, who are distraught, who are train wrecks in their life, help them realize how gracious you are. Help them to to speak to someone this morning, to seek someone out, to help redirect them in the path of understanding what your word says and how they can live accordingly to it, and help us to be gracious. Father, the temptation for us as the church is for believers that have walked with you for a long time is to, is to turn our nose to think that we would never sin that way, the way that they are struggling or the desires they're, they're working through. And yet, in those moments, we forget the gospel. We forget what you've saved us from. And so help us not to forget the good news. Help us to relish it and to love it and to share it with others. Help us to be able to talk with others who are struggling with with different desires, whether sexual in nature or or same-sex attraction, or those that are just simply, they're they're disordered in their lives and and, and work and family and home and their marriage. Help us to minister to one to another, one to another. Give us grace, give us patience. And I pray that you would answer those prayers and those those needs of of your people here in this church. And may we follow you. We thank you again for your word. We thank you that we can gather and sing to you. And now go with us as we leave this place. For your honor and glory we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.